Good evening. Um, welcome to the LSE and um, to this Department of Management Women in Business Public Lecture. Uh, my name is Dr. Tara Reich. I am an assistant professor in, of organizational behavior in the Department of Management. Um, and it is my absolute pleasure to be here to uh, welcome Tiffany Dufu to the UK um, and to the LSE. Uh, Tiffany, as you may know, is a pioneer in uh, the women's leadership movement, um, and she has dedicated her career to advancing uh, women and girls and to addressing issues around uh, women's leadership in the United States. Um, many Fortune 500 companies have hired Tiffany to advise them on uh, retention and advancement of women, uh, and she spearheaded a national campaign um, aimed at increasing women's leadership uh, in, uh, in American in institutions. Um, Today, Tiffany is uh, Chief Leadership Officer at LAVO, um, a social enterprise and uh, network for millennial, especially uh, young women, um, in elevating them in the workplace. Um, I could go on at length um, describing Tiffany's professional achievements, um, but she's actually here tonight to tell us a more personal story, one that's outlined in the pages of her new book, Drop the Ball, Expect Less from Yourself, Get More from Him, and Flourish at Work and Life. <laughs> Uh, the book is uh, a memoir about uh, Tiffany's experience uh, trying to do it all, uh, both at work and at home, and as well as the um, limitations that that can impose on us. Um, filled with practicable examples, as well as a healthy dose of uh, academic research, Tiffany provides a powerful, bold manifesto for change. Um, and she illustrates how women really need to cultivate a one particular skill that is crucial for them uh, getting ahead or achieving, achieving in their career, uh, which is to let things go. Um, it seems very fitting that we should be discussing um, the advancement of women um, or forging a brighter future for women uh, here at the LSE because it's on the streets um, just outside of this lecture theater that uh, the headquarters of the Women's Social and Political Union once stood. Um, at the turn of the 20th century, these women were fighting for a very different future, um, fighting for a world that looked very different from the one that they were inhabiting. They, they were fighting for the right for women to vote in the UK. LSE's early neighbors show us that change can and will happen, and uh, it's exciting to be a part of a discussion on how that can uh, actually be achieved. Um, one thing that also struck me as I spoke to some of my colleagues uh, in preparation for tonight's event is how many of my especially female colleagues couldn't be here tonight uh, because they are at home dealing with uh, home responsibilities, be that looking after children um, or elderly family members. So it seems kind of ironic to be having a discussion about these complicated issues of gender roles and work-life balance at a time of day when women may be disproportionately less able to participate um, because they are disproportionately expected to be at home, both uh, by the themselves as well as uh, from society. So that irony is not lost on us. <laughs> um, but to help address this, we are live streaming tonight's event. Um, so to those who are watching uh, at home or wherever you may be, you're also very welcome. Um, and we're also going to be uh, posting the recording of this event, uh, barring any technical difficulties, of course. Um, and uh, we'll post it as a podcast on the LSE website. Um, now, before I invite Tiffany to speak, um, I just want to say a few words about the format of tonight's event. Um, so Tiffany is going to speak for about 40 minutes, and then we'll open up the floor to your questions. Uh, those of you who would like to take the discussion online are encouraged to use the hashtag LSEDufu. 
Um, and then I'd just finally like to remind you to please uh, make sure that your phones are at least on silent, if not off, um, so that they don't disrupt the event. Um, but now, without further ado, please join me in uh, warmly welcoming Tiffany Dufu, um, who's going to talk to us about how women can do more or achieve more by doing less. Good evening. I actually won't be offended if I see you doing anything that looks something like this. I'll assume it means that I've said something that maybe you think someone else outside of this room should hear. So that's why we have hashtags these days, right? Probably about two months ago, two and a half months ago, I got a call from my daughter's school. It was around 3 p.m. She was in the nurse's office, and she was crying uncontrollably. She was physically okay, but what happened was that after school, all of her friends had left for a birthday party that she knew nothing about, and she was absolutely devastated. It's a very sad story, right? Um, to make matters worse, I have to confess that this exact same scenario has happened more than once in our family. And furthermore, that I can anticipate that it's going to happen. There's something that I could do to prevent it from happening, but I don't. I intentionally drop the ball. Now, before you start throwing tomatoes at me or whatever, you, we throw tomatoes <laughs> um, in the States because I must be a very evil person and certainly a very bad mother, I, I really want to take you back in time so that we can understand how we got to this point. Um, my daughter was invited to the birthday party, by the way. It's just that it didn't make it onto my calendar and it didn't make it onto my husband's calendar and therefore she didn't know anything about it. My life's work is advancing women and girls. That's pretty much why I'm on the planet. So my life is very simple, actually. I already know what's on my tombstone. And I'm just kind of project managing my life backwards. <laughs> and right now, I feel really, really lucky that I get to execute my purpose in a number of different ways as chief leadership officer of LEVO, as a consultant and as a public speaker and supporting Fortune 500 companies figure out how do we retain and how to advance the women that, quite frankly, were losing in droves, which then led to this other project called Drop the Ball. And I also serve on nonprofit boards, NGO boards. They're doing really great work, I feel, with girls in particular in their leadership. I'm on the board of an organization called Girls Who Code that trains young women to code and to be computer programmers because I care deeply about girls and science and math. And I'm on the board of an organization called Girl Scouts USA. For most of my career, I've been focused on this conundrum, this problem, around women in leadership. And this is a slide from Lean In. Um, I was on the launch team for Lean In and McKinsey that basically shows a dynamic that I'm sure many of you are familiar with, which is that women enter the workforce um, in the same number that we represent the population at about 50%, but that by the time we get to the highest levels of leadership, there's about 18 or 19% of us left that are still there. And what's fascinating to me about this phenomenon is that 
it really is true not just in business, but actually across nearly every sector of our society. And we've done a lot of polling and there's been a lot of work on, you know, why that is, particularly because very few people would say outright, well, I just don't believe that a woman should be a leader, except, of course, for three in three areas that we call guns, games and God. So in the military, when you poll people, there are some who will say, oh, I'm not quite sure that we should have women in leadership. In sports, there are certain people, depending upon the sport, who might say, oh, I'm not sure that a woman belongs there. And in religion, certainly, there are people who, based on their religious beliefs, feel that there are some rules for men and there are some rules for women. But outside of those three areas, we're pretty much evolved when we're polled about women and about men and about gender roles. So that's why I find this whole you know, leadership conundrum really fascinating. Sometimes people ask me, Tiffany, why are you so obsessed with getting more women into leadership? And part of my obsession is connected to this experience that I had with my father when I was growing up. My dad used to have this, call it a conspiracy theory, about this small group of people that ran the world. It was kind of like the man, that's what we call it in the U.S., except it was plural, so it was more insidious. And he would always say that it was kind of like the, the alternate universe of the super friends. And I would be very embarrassed when my friends would come over and he would warn us about these people. <laughs> and I used to think that my father was crazy. Until I, as a professional, began to ascend in my own leadership. And I did start to make this observation that, you know, there are in every organization people who sit around really big, beautiful marble or wooden tables, right, with big plush leather chairs. And in every office or institution, there's a room that looks something like this. And the people who sit in this room are the people that are making decisions that impact every single one of us, okay? And whether you care deeply about the environment, about economics, about health care, education, whatever it is that you care deeply about, at the end of the day, there are people sitting around tables like this that are making the decisions that are impacting the public policies, the corporate practices, and our institutions. And for most of history, the people who are sitting around these tables are largely very similar in their makeup. Okay? Most of them are men, most of them are white, most of them are straight, and most of them come from a high social class. Most of them are able-bodied. Rarely are they disabled individuals that are sitting around these chairs. And I want to be really clear that there's nothing wrong with that group of people, right? I have a lot of friends who are men and who are white and who are very rich, right, and can walk <laughs> on two legs, right? It's just that there's a lot of research that shows that when you're trying to solve a very complex problem, and the person who's done the best is Scott Page at Harvard, that when you're trying to solve a very complex problem, that a more innovative outcome and solution can be achieved by having a diverse group of people with different perspectives sitting around the table. And it just seems that today, with the complex problems that we have and with the challenges that we have in our current world, that one of the things that would be really important for us to try is getting more diverse groups of people sitting around these tables. And that fundamentally is why I'm obsessed with women and leadership and how we can get more 
into these positions. Now, for most of my career, I was very focused on what I would call collective solutions to the women's leadership conundrum. I am a big proponent of equal pay for equal work. We had equal pay day in the US yesterday. I'm a big proponent of things like affordable childcare. Right? And in the US, we talk a lot about Europe and the fact that there are opportunities and that there are systems for working families to be able to have places to take their young people, you know, uh, by the way, and places to take their old people, right? Because we need to be, humans need to be cared for on both sides of the spectrum. I really think it's important, for example, for workplaces to have flexible arrangements for employees that allow us to be productive team players at work but also to be able to take care of people at home. These are the things that I speak about most of the time. But I had this observation in 2013, Lean In had just launched. I was doing a lot of public speaking. And one of the things that kept happening, that I kept noticing that year, was that every time I would speak for about 45 minutes or an hour about women and leadership and all of these collective solutions that we need in order for women to advance, whenever it was time for the Q&A, whenever we would close, and I would open it up for questions, the first set of questions that I would always get were, to me, personal questions that had nothing to do with what I just spoke about. So literally, I would say, okay, thank you very much. It's time for the questions now. And a woman would raise her hand. And she would say, um, yes, Tiffany, so my question is, I heard during your talk that you have a daughter who's five, and you also have a son who's eight, and you said something about your husband who's in Dubai. You're with us right now in San Francisco, but you live in New York, and tomorrow you're going to be in London, and I like your dress, and I like your shoes, and you seem healthy and happy. And I'm just noticing your arms. I think maybe you go to the gym or something like that. <laughs> and you have this career that's focused on your passion and your purpose of advancing women and girls. And I was just, I've just been watching you and I've been wondering, how are you doing all of this? Right? And I would look around and all of the other women in the audience, and these mostly majority women, would be clapping like, yeah. I don't know what she was talking about. The whole time, I was just wondering the same exact thing. And I got this question so frequently, how do you manage it all, that I had come up with a one-liner to respond to the question. I would say, oh, I just expect far less from myself and way more from my husband than the average woman. And then I would get the little chuckles just like that. And I would then try to move people on to what I felt were more important, substantive issues like public policy and workplace practices. But one day, I literally stepped back from the podium after the Q&A was all wrapped up, and I had what I call a Tiffany's epiphany. <laughs> um, it was basically this voice that said, Tiffany, this is not about you. The world does not revolve around you. All of these women, over and over and over again, have not been asking you, how do you manage it all? Because they care about the details of your personal life that you don't want to disclose, which was the biggest reason why I thought it was a, such a superficial question. They're asking you, how do you manage it all? Because they're asking themselves, how can I manage it all? And if your life's work truly is advancing women and girls, then you owe women a better answer to that question. 
you owe them a better answer to the question than the one-liner that you came up with to get a few laughs and to move them on to the things that you feel are more important. I don't know if you've ever had a time in your life where someone who's very wise says something to you repeatedly, and you say, yeah, sure, sure, but it isn't until a future state where you realize what they were actually saying to you. And that's what happened in that moment. One of the women who's very important to me, I call her my political mother, is a woman named Marie Wilson. She built the Ms. Foundation for Women. She started something called Take Your Daughters to Work Day. Do you take your daughters to work day or your sons to work day? Should be now at this point. She started an organization called the White House Project. And when I was working for Marie Wilson for many years, she would always say to me, honey, if you want to create real change in the world, you're going to have to learn how to meet people where they are, not expect people to come to where you are. And in that moment, I finally understood what Marie was talking about. I had basically been going for at least three or four years from city to city, from stage to stage, imposing my ambition on hundreds of women at a time and saying to them, no, no, women's leadership is very important, and you can be a CEO, and you can be in parliament, and you can be a mogul, you know, and start your own company, and be an entrepreneur. And all of the women were nodding their heads and saying, yes, that's very great in theory, but right now today, I'm trying to figure out how do I get out of the house at the right time with everyone with the right backpack and the right lunch, That's where I'm at. Can you come and meet me where I'm at? And I finally decided that yes, I would. Yes, I would. One of the things that happened during that same amount of time, that same year, is that I started accepting all of the invitations that I would receive from women asking, can we go to lunch? Can you go to tea? Many of you are at at roles and in organizations in which you're the one that's getting those emails. Many of you are in the rooms and you're the ones that are sending those kinds of emails to someone in the world. Well, I get a lot of those. And they were starting to be really overwhelming. But I made this commitment, this decision that if I'm really committed to women and girls, I'm going to try to see as many of these women as possible that are reaching out to me. By the way, I do not advise this. It is not in alignment with my drop the ball theory. Okay? But for someone like me, for whom it's very important to advance women and girls, one of the things that's really important is that I connect with them one-on-one and that I listen to enough stories that I can give advice and that I can give insight. And one of the observations that I made in all of these conversations that I would have, and I still, I meet with women usually usually on Tuesdays and Thursdays and Fridays when I'm in the U.S. at 9, 10, and 11. So about six or seven women a week. And as I started listening to the stories and getting just off of the stage, I started making this observation that there was this direct correlation between a woman's ambition. And when I talk about ambition, I mean a combination of a desire to achieve mastery of a craft you want to be very, very good at something, that's an important part of ambition, combined with a desire to receive public recognition for it. You want your gold star. This is where women are often ambivalent about ambition because we're socialized to think that we shouldn't want credit, especially here, I've noticed. (laughs) But if deep down inside you want to be very good at something and deep down inside you really want the gold star, then you're likely ambitious. And there was this direct correlation that I found over and over in listening to women's stories between their feeling that they could fulfill their ambition, right, and be the leader in the public sphere that they wanted to be, and the amount of responsibility and work that they felt on the home front. 
And basically, the more responsibility and work they felt and pressure they felt on the home front, the less pressure and responsibility they felt or the, the less bandwidth they felt that they had to fulfill the ambition on the public front. And it kind of makes sense when you think about it. If you're already overwhelmed, have any of you ever been overwhelmed? Have you ever been stressed? Have you ever felt like you have a lot on your plate? Let me ask you this, do you want more on your plate? No, right? Uh, and so for me, this was a big conundrum because in order for me to realize my utopian world of more women sitting around those wooden and marble tables, I needed more of us to want it and to want to make the sacrifice that would be required in order to achieve it. So I felt that, you know, I'm going to have to help with this conundrum and with this problem. But my biggest problem was that in order to do this, I was going to have to tell my personal story. And I didn't want to tell my personal story for a number of different reasons, some of them cultural, because we don't air our dirty laundry in the culture that I grew up in. But one of them was that I had what I called at the time my dirty feminist secret. And I didn't want anyone to know my dirty feminist secret, which was that publicly I would get on stages and in my career I would write about how we really needed to disrupt gender stereotypes in the workplace and in the world and how the disruption of those stereotypes would create new opportunities and how those were barriers to women's advancement and to quite frankly men's advancement too. But at home, I didn't question any of those stereotypes. At home, I was on Stepford Wife Autopilot. And my Stepford Wife Autopilot was made even worse by me having a very bad case of a condition that I call HCD, home control disease. This is basically when you think that everything under your roof should happen a certain way, which is your way. Okay? Now, <laughs> This seems very small and insignificant, but it turns out that this HCD amounts to an enormous amount of work. Okay? For example, there was a time in my life when I used to cook every day, and I always chuckle when I say that because it's laughable that anyone could cook every single day, but I did. And so that meant that there were always leftovers in the refrigerator. So let's say that on Monday I made meatloaf, and on Tuesday I made fajitas, and on Wednesday I made fried chicken. On Thursday, if I had a work event and my husband was home alone, I would expect him to eat the meatloaf first, you see, because I had a running expiration date in my head for all of the leftovers that were in the refrigerator. And when I would come home and he had eaten the chicken, I would be very annoyed. And of course, he would not understand why. And I would say, why did you eat the chicken? And he would say, baby, I like your chicken. And I would say, so you don't like my meatloaf? And then he knew not to say anything else, you know, right? Now, this seems very inconsequential, the difference between meatloaf and fried chicken, when we have things to worry about, like women not getting paid equal pay for equal work or affordable childcare. But what's important to, to note when we look at the very details is that this obsession kind of manifested in all kinds of ways. So, for example, I used to think that it was very important that all of the hangers in the closet faced the same direction. Okay? I thought it was very important that the towels and the linen closet be folded a certain way, and when someone would do it incorrectly, I would go back when they weren't looking and I would fix it. Okay? <laughs> I felt that it was very important that all of the mail be retrieved from the mailbox every day, 
that you take the adverts and the junk mail and you recycle that and then you open all of the envelopes and you deal with what's inside because if you don't it's going to pile up and then guess who's going to have to deal with it i especially felt that if someone sent you a birthday party invitation you should rsvp right away to make sure that it got on the calendar and to ensure that someone in the world didn't think that you were very rude or really bad person Now, as you can imagine, this was a lot of work, but I want to be really clear that as I'm describing this to you, I'm describing this to you in hindsight, and we're laughing about it now, but at the time, I didn't think that it was funny at all. Um, and I didn't think that I was on Stepford Wife Autopilot. I actually thought of myself as a very modern woman at this time, and I thought of uh, myself and my husband as a very modern couple, even though if you had done... an analysis of our household division of labor in 1997 it would have been the same as a couple in 1950 okay i still thought of us as very modern and i thought of myself as very empowered and somehow miraculously for a very long time i was able to maintain flawlessness both at work and at home until this one life changing event happened which was that i had a child okay and you don't have to have children if you've ever just been in the room with a small child you can imagine that The small child combined with the HCD basically sent the world that I had thought was so perfect into a downward spiral. Okay? And I eventually started doing the one thing that I had always been most terrified of doing. I started dropping balls. Okay? I don't know how many of those orange parking citations we get in New York yours but it's probably a different color you know that you can collect before they come and arrest you but i am, i am evidence that it's a lot of them okay and no one came to arrest me okay? no one actually called me to tell me that you know they didn't love me anymore that they weren't going to be my friend um because i missed something and over time i began to realize that wow You know, you can drop balls. The world doesn't fall apart. Why was I so obsessed with dropping the balls to begin with? And the reason why this is really important is because I used to have this very scary definition of what it meant to drop the ball. For me, dropping the ball meant failure. It meant that I was letting myself down. I was letting other people down. It meant that I was doing something not in a timely manner and that I was making a mistake. But over time as I began to drop enough balls and there wasn't any armageddon I started to do what we call reappropriating a term and I started dropping the ball more strategically and over time my definition of dropping the ball changed because I started to question why I had these very high expectations to begin with and what it was that I might be able to do to relieve myself and of course eventually support other people in the process so my new definition of dropping the ball is really about releasing unrealistic expectations of doing it all and i want to spend the rest of the time sharing with you the biggest balls that i had to drop in order to make this happen because i think that's the most useful um and of course it's covered in the book but i think it's it's really important because there are a lot of little balls but these were the biggest The first ball that I had to learn to drop was this unrealistic expectation about who I was supposed to be. Okay? See, all of us have roles that we fulfill. If we're a woman, our first role was probably daughter. If we're a man, it was probably son. 
At some point, we might have become a sister or a brother, certainly a friend, definitely a student. At some point, we might become wives and mothers, some of us workers, all of us citizens. And if we are ambitious, we by default put the word good in front of all of our roles. So it's not sufficient to be a daughter. We have to be a good daughter. We can't just be a student, we strive to be a good student and a good friend and a good wife and a good mother. And it turns out that each one of these good roles has an invisible job description that surprisingly, though we might be born in different parts of the world, to different families with different values, a lot of us understand these job descriptions that are invisible. I'm the oldest of four girls And in my good sister job description, it says that I am to respond to my little sister's text messages within two minutes. Every big sister knows this. In order to be a good mother, one of the things in the job description, it says is that you need to be physically present when their child, you know, takes their first steps. All good mothers know this is in the job description. If you are a good husband, if you're a good father... In your job description, it says that you are strive to be a breadwinner at all costs, even the cost of meaningfully engaging with your family. A lot of men feel this pressure. They know that it's in the job description. We don't talk about them, but we understand these to be true. And one of the things that was very important in me dropping this ball was basically recurating the job descriptions that fit me and that fit my family and that fit my community. And this was very difficult because, you see, when you feel that you're very ambitious and that you're empowered and that you're making all of your own choices and that you are in the driver's seat of your own life, it's a very difficult pill to swallow to reckon with the fact that actually you're living someone else's story every day. One of the exercises that I do when I'm workshopping drop the ball with women is to ask them two questions in relationship to their roles. And I encourage all of you to think about doing this exercise yourself, which is to just think about all of the roles that you occupy and to ask yourself two questions in relationship to them. The first question is, what does a good ex do? I've given you some hints, but just from your perspective, right? If I'm a good student, what does a good student do? And the second question is, How do I know that that's what a good ex does? It's a very important exercise because I've never done this exercise with anyone whose response was, well, I made it up. I decided that that's what a good ex does. Most of us start with other people in our lives who we saw model the good ex. Could have been our mothers. It could have been our aunties in the case of wife and mother. For me, it was women in the church that I grew up with. There's also this thing called popular culture. When I was growing up, my family used to watch the Cosby show religiously, and I was going to be Claire Huxtable. I was going to have perfectly feathered hair. I was going to have flawless makeup. I was going to walk in the room, and my outfit was going to flow behind me. You know how every time she walked in a room, the outfit would flow? They must have had a fan on the set. And I was going to have a clean home. It was always so clean. And I was going to have five perfectly well-behaved, university-bound children, And in the second season of my life, I would make partner at a law firm. (laughs) I don't know about any of you, but I don't know any woman who has five perfectly well-behaved children and has been able to make partner at a law firm. But it wasn't until much later in my drop-the-ball evolution that I realized how ridiculous that was. 
What I had to do in order to drop this ball was to get really clear about what mattered most to me. And after a number of exercises, it became really clear that one of the things that mattered most to me was advancing women and girls, surprise, surprise, but that there were two others, nurturing a really healthy partnership with my husband and raising conscious global citizens. And why coming to that was really important is because the second ball that I had to figure out how to drop was this unrealistic expectation about what I was supposed to do. I once did a workshop with women in which we were just supposed to be trying to figure out how to prioritize and manage our time. And the first part of the exercise, I asked every woman in the room to write down a list of all of the things that she expected to complete in an ideal day. And I mean every single thing. Like if you get up in the morning and you go to the gym, you write that. If you wake up and you lie in bed for 20 minutes thinking about how you should be going to the gym, you write that down. That takes up time. Okay? You're getting dressed. You're doing your commute. You're preparing for meetings. All of the things until your head hits the pillow or certainly what, you, what represents for you an ideal day. And then I asked everyone to write down how long would it take you to do each one of those things and to sum it at the bottom. Well, you won't be surprised to know that not one person in the room had an amount that was less than the 24 hours that any of us have in a day, and then only half the women had managed to put sleep on their list. Right? They didn't even think about that part of the 24-hour cycle. And it was another Tiffany's epiphany for me, because I realized that for so many of us, who are walking around with feelings of inadequacy, as if we're not enough, as if we're not doing enough, as if we can't get to it all. The truth is that the reason why we feel that way is because we can't. That the expectation that we have of what we should be doing is humanly impossible, and that it's connected to the fact that we're just constantly thinking of what we feel like should be done, and then we're adding it to our to-do list. And even if we're not mentally you know, putting it down, it's in our mind, and sometimes we even wake up at 2 a.m. and it's just running and we can't get back to sleep. And so I had to figure out how to get clear about, well, what is my highest and best use in achieving what matters most to me? as opposed to just constantly creating or having these mental to-do lists that I'm feeling overwhelmed by. My highest and best use is basically a combination of what I do very well with very little effort, not necessarily because I'm a prodigy in it, but because I've just done it a lot, combined with what is it that only I can do that really can't be delegated to others. For example, if what matters most to me in the context of kids and parenting is raising conscious global citizens, then one of the things that I do personally very well with very little effort is helping other people to achieve clarity through guidance and encouragement. Some people would call that coaching. It's part of the reason why I can spend so much time with women listening to their stories. One of the things that only I can do in relationship to my kids is instilling values in them. It's very hard to outsource the installation of values in people, right? So my highest and best use in raising conscious global citizens is engaging my children in meaningful conversations each and every day, no matter where I am in the world, right? On whatever platform I can reach them on, the telephone, FaceTime, Skype. And I ask them questions like, what kind of day did you create for yourself today? Or who made you laugh today? What did you laugh about? Or one of their favorites, if an alien spaceship came to your school today and abducted one person, who would they have abducted? And why would they have abducted that person? 
And in that way, if I can do that, one act every single day, then I've decided I fulfilled my good mom job description. It doesn't mean that there are other things that don't need to happen or that don't need to be done. What it means is that I've no longer attached my value and my worth to my performance in any of those other jobs. So I'm constantly, relentlessly asking myself this drop-the-ball question. You know, is X, Y, or Z on the to-do list my highest and best use in achieving what matters most to me? And if the answer is no, I often move on. Now, of course, the challenge is that when you start doing things like this, it does impact other people in your life. And one of the things that I really had to drop in terms of a very heavy ball is really the most ironic one, which is this fear of asking for help. And I say it's ironic because I happen to be someone who's quite obsessed with helping other people. So I find it ironic that I was the person who was most terrified and was, did such a poor job of getting other people to help. But one of the people that I engaged in a really important way was my husband. And Drop the Ball is largely a memoir and kind of a romantic comedy that chronicles that journey. One of the things that I delegated with joy to my husband, his name is Kojo, is managing my kids' social calendar. It turns out that that task, which largely women take on, should actually be managed by the person in the relationship who is the social butterfly, not just the woman. And so my husband has taken it on, and he does a remarkable job because he actually can keep track of which kid goes with which parent. The challenge is that the world hasn't quite evolved for women who drop the ball or certainly for evolved families. For example... No one ever sends a child's birthday party invitation to their father. Whenever I get the invitation and I see it, sometimes I commit this little tiny act of defiance, which is to write the person back and to say, thank you so much for inviting my daughter to your party. Her father is her calendar maven. Can you please send him the invitation at and give his email address. But on a lot of days when I'm getting a lot of emails in my inbox, I'm getting a lot of texts from my little sisters, I'm getting a lot of phone calls, I'm seeing the billboard saying that I need to be even more skinny and eat more of this and have this cream on my face, I have to ask myself my drop-the-ball question. Is responding to this birthday party invitation my highest and best use in achieving what matters most to me, which in this case is raising a conscious global citizen? And the answer is no, and I move on. And that's how we end up with a phone call at 3 p.m. from my daughter's school and her crying uncontrollably because she missed the birthday party. Um, This is Ekua, and she loves donuts with pink frosting, and sprinkles. And the last time that I had (laughs) to go and deal with this crisis, I brought her a donut because it always cheers her up. I didn't feel guilty, but I do have empathy. I'm not heartless. And I could imagine from her perspective how it might feel. And so I apologized to her, and I read her her favorite story. Now, I've told this story many times, and usually at some point someone either asks or they come up to me and they say, okay, I totally get it, but I just could never do that. (laughs) And I want you to know that if you're thinking that or if you're feeling that, I completely understand. I really, really do. It's just that for me personally, one of the observations that I've made is that in the past seven years since I've dropped the ball, I've been able to do a lot of things that I otherwise wouldn't have. 
I've been able to run a national women's leadership organization that's trained thousands of women to run for office. A lot of people around the world are concerned about the number of women in political leadership, but I actually know there's a huge pipeline of women who are ready to fill the ranks and who are going to get there. I've been able to raise millions of dollars for women's nonprofits that I think are doing really incredible work, especially work helping our girls to be confident thinkers and strong leaders. I've been able to help grow the largest platform for millennial women called Levo. And I've even had time to sit in coffee shops and write a book called Drop the Ball. And if any of those things, if any one of those things does something to help create a future world in which my Ekua can walk in the world into a workplace to do and be whatever she wants to be in the world and not be encumbered by these very high expectations that she did not create, then I just feel like it's worth it. It's just worth it for her to miss a couple of birthday parties. That's what I've decided. This is my mom, Brenda. And she found out that she was pregnant with me when she was 19 years old. This is me. Um, my parents are from Watts, L.A. I don't know if, if any of you are familiar with Watts, but suffice it to say that it was a rough place and it was a rough time in the mid-1970s. My mom didn't know anything other than this environment, but she knew that she wanted something different for her family, and so she convinced my dad to join the Army. And I was born nine months later at Fort Lewis Army Base in Tacoma, Washington. My dad eventually went to college on the GI Bill. That's the um, government program that allows people who, to do, who do military service to get a college education. And he eventually earned a PhD in theology. When I was growing up, we lived in a lovely house, literally with a white picket fence around it. My parents broke a very vicious cycle of poverty and addiction and violence in one generation. I don't know any of those cycles. And they did it based on this fundamental truth, which is that if you want something that you've never had before, you're going to have to do something that you've never done before in order to get it. And so I hope that something that I've shared with you tonight, although I know a bit controversial at times, can help you to think about what you might do differently to advance women's leadership tomorrow that maybe you didn't do today. And really, that's all that I ask. You can drop the ball on everything else. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Tiffany, for your insights um, and for your inspiration. Um, I'm going to open the floor to questions now. Um, the way I'd like to take questions is we'll take three at a time, um, and then we'll turn it over to you to answer them in whatever order makes sense to you. Um, we have stewards with roving microphones, so if you could just put your hand up, and I will uh, send the steward to you with the microphone. Um, and if you could please say your name and your affiliation uh, before your question, that will really help. Um, so I think... We have one in the middle here with the white shirt. I can see you on the balcony too if there are questions there. There. Hi, I'm Grace Chang. I'm an alumni of the LSE. Uh, thank you very much for that very inspiring talk. Uh, my question is, who is, uh, which woman is your biggest inspiration and why? 
question here. Yeah. Hi, I'm Jasmine Shah. I'm an LSE alumni and recently joined um, working as a consultant at PwC. And my question is, um, I understand your point of view completely about dropping the ball and what we can do individually, but how, after dropping the ball, do we tackle other barriers in the workplace, such as other people's attitudes, norms, institutions, things like race, disability, um, biases that may exist that we can't necessarily control by dropping the ball ourselves? Thank you. And there's one just up here. Why don't we start with those first two questions. So the first one, I think, was uh, who's your biggest inspiration? Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, that, it's hard because I'm the cumulative investment of basically a bunch of people um, and a lot of women who I admire. But I think the person who comes to my mind the most, and it's probably because I ended with the slide about my mom, um, is my grandmother who was living in a really rough time, in a really rough place, and trying to raise her family. Um, and I learned much later in life had a hobby. Whenever I would go to my grandmother's house, I was always really into the glass that she would have. And she even had them hanging. It's probably a 70s thing, but she would have like glass beads hanging from the ceiling. And later in my adulthood, I found out that my grandmother made all of the glass that I would see when I would go to her home. There was basically a community center where you could go and learn how to blow glass. And part of the reason why she's someone who really inspires me is because as I thought about myself and my own leadership, it just astounded me that this woman who in so many other ways was barely holding on by a thread was able to find this piece of herself and, that, and to do something that brought her so much joy and that she loved um, that was so beautiful in an environment that didn't really feel or seem beautiful. And I think that, you know, for all of um, our propensity to want to sacrifice ourselves at the expense of others, that it was a very important and powerful lesson for me to know that actually sometimes we just need to go blow glass too. (laughs) The second question was about my collective solutions. So... I love that question because if you're a woman who has the bandwidth, I wrote the book for the women who are so overwhelmed and feeling so much pressure that they can't quite get to how to support in the work, but they're just trying to get by every day, quite frankly. Um, If you are someone who has any agency over the workplace, meaning that you manage people or you're in a position of leadership, those are the people that I actually spend most of my time with on a daily, on a day-to-day basis. Those are my clients. And there are lots of things that I encourage them to do in order to disrupt the assumptions about the workplace so that everyone, not just women, but everyone across difference can bring their full selves to the table. Um, A lot of it has to do with spending time with senior leaders and helping them to understand that the environment that they think is a meritocracy is not a meritocracy. You know, one of the questions that I often ask senior leaders who are just so in such a conundrum over why there aren't more women or why there aren't more people of color or why there aren't more LGBT people in leadership is to ask them, well, talk to me about what is required. What are the attributes you need to demonstrate 
in order to rise at this company and in order to be successful here in this environment. And of course, they all say the same things. We need to work really hard and you need to make sure that you know, you're you know, securing the business. And they have all of these, these attributes. And I say, well, do you possess all of those attributes. And they say, well, of course we possess those attributes. That's why we're sitting around the big wooden and marble table in our leather, you know, chair. And then I say, well, the women who are in your organization who you're hiring, are you suggesting that they don't have a good work ethic? That they're not strategic? That they're not working hard? I just lift off the attributes back. And of course I'll say, well, no, like Sally, she's very hardworking and she's very, I say, so do you think maybe there's something else that's happening? in this environment other than demonstrating those attributes that has made an impact and influence the fact that you're all sitting here and you all look the same and you're sitting around this table, but there are so many other people who are not you know, in the room. So that's part of my job, to be honest with you, is to help disrupt those assumptions because in that way, you can then get employers to develop programming that speaks to the heart of the problem and that doesn't put the problem or the blame onto the other person. So, for example, lots of companies have all kinds of leadership development programs for women, you know, to fix women. And it's always so funny to me because we're always overqualified. Like, we, like, you know, we don't want to take the risk of putting our hat in the ring. So, like, every woman, like, she's, she doesn't need any help. She really is doing an excellent job. Um, and trying to get them to focus on programming that speaks to the real problem, which is the environment itself. So, for example, one, you know, really great innovative program that I loved was one in which there was very direct sponsorship between the people who had already made partner in the firm and the women in the firm who were up for partnership. And the first meeting that they were required to have was a meeting not about what she needed to bring, what she needed to have, was a meeting about the other partners in the firm. I said, well, how do women make partner here? Well, the partners vote, the current partners vote on who makes partner. I said, so this is like politics, right? You vote, yes, okay. So then we need to make sure that she's got enough votes. That's what this is about. So, you know, I, I think there are a lot of things that can be done, but most of it is cultural in an institution and really creating a place and an environment where everyone can feel like I can bring my full self to the table. And then, of course, there are actual policies that I spoke about and that I mentioned that I think are really important. And so at the same time that I, I've dropped the ball, so I have the bandwidth to actually advocate for those and call my legislatures and vote and do all the things that we need to do um, and to work with senior leaders to try to change the workplace. And if any of you can do any of that too, then join me and we can talk about organizations that are doing that really well. Um, but for anyone who is like, I just have too much on my plate, like I cannot make another phone call. Then drop the ball first and then we can get to that. Okay. Uh, there's a question in the front in the blue shirt. Uh, put a plaid shirt here. Everybody in the, in the balcony has got questions. Yes. Um, and one up here in red. Let's go with those. Hi there, um, I'm Aisha and I work at Unilever in Sustainability. Um, I'm really interested in this idea of thinking about your highest and best use of your time and what only you can do. How, what would you suggest into thinking about how you actually find those, figure those out? Okay. Yes. So, you know, you're, I learned about this through a management course. Um, my boss years ago had sent me to a program that 
helps you to figure out how to be a better manager. You know, for to a certain point in our career, our success is largely based on our own effort and our own initiative and our own work product. But at some point when you've got other people who you're the boss of, you have to learn how to achieve results through other people. And this is a very important transition in your leadership and in your career because you have to learn how to not do the things that you just do really well. Right? Because ever, anyone who reports to you, you could probably do their job better than them. Right? But you can't do their job. Right? Otherwise, you wouldn't actually achieve the goal. And so this idea of highest and best use really came out of an economic principle. You know, it's the law of comparative you know, advantage, that basically countries shouldn't just produce all of the goods that they need in order to sustain themselves just because they can produce all of them. You should produce some, and then you should import the rest. And that's really what employing that strategy is all about. It's instead of this belief in this false efficiency, and on the home front, it's really terrible because women often have everything on their plates because we think we can do everything better and faster than everybody else. So why shouldn't I just get it done and get it over with? There's a lot that needs to be done. And if you suggest that she should delegate it to someone else, she's like, well, that's too much trouble because I'm going to have to explain to them how to do it. Then they're not going to do it the way that it needs to be done, and I'm going to do it again anyway. And so it's really getting, trying to disrupt the mindset of doing it all yourself is the best strategy to actually getting it done and really focusing on, but if I'm the boss, if I'm the manager, what is it that I should be focused on and what are the things that I'm depriving other people of when I am insistent upon doing it? But there's more in the book, obviously. <laughs> Accepting that the hangers don't always have to face they the don't. same direction. They don't. It's not important. <laughs> uh, up there. Um, my name is Christelle, and I'm from the Department of Management. I'm, I'm doing... having a hard time. Oh, there you are. Oh, I'm glad. I'm doing my master's in human resources and management. Um, I wanted to know, did anybody notice that you dropped the ball, meaning in your work environment, your family environment, your social environment? If yes, uh, what, was, what were their, some of their reactions? And also, how did your uh, husband um, kind of provide some of his bandwidth to support you? Mm -hmm. Did you kind of uh, ask for help in that sense, or was it kind of an uh, organic understanding of, of the situation? <sighs> no, it was not an organic understanding of the situation. <laughs> No, it was not that. Yes, people noticed that I was dropping balls. Um, and this is a really important part of the struggle and the journey, is that all of the exercising of the good roles involve often other people who have expectations, just like you do, of what you should be doing. Um, in the beginning, it was very challenging to engage him in this process because not only was I not very good at asking for help, I would engage in this other phenomenon that I call imaginary delegation. This is when you assign someone a task and you fully expect them to complete the task. And when they don't complete it, you're annoyed or worse yet, furious. But you don't ever actually tell them that you assigned them the task. <laughs> And then when common sense prevails and you say to yourself, well, I never actually told them to take out the recycling, you snap back at common sense. Well, nobody has to tell me to do anything around here and somehow it all seems to get done. And then you kind of go back you know, into this vicious cycle. So I had to first deal with the imaginary delegation. Then I had to get to a point where I could delegate with joy and really for anyone in our lives. But this is particularly important and works best for the people who care about us, who really do love us. It's about putting whatever it is that you need support with into a much higher context. It's having these very intentional conversations. You see, most of us are just living by default. It's kind of like the ringtone on your iPhone. It never occurs you to change it unless 
you want to be cool or different or something. Um, otherwise, you just go with the flow because it works. Instead of really engaging people in a meaningful way, I love Dr. Phil, and I read O Magazine, and I read his columns in O Magazine. Um, by the way, he needs more questions because he's answered like six of my questions in the magazine. <laughs> and I love his columns because he has these scripts for how to manage a difficult conversation with someone. You see, at work, we think strategically about what we should say in a meeting to other people. Sometimes we rehearse, sometimes we practice. It was much more thoughtful. But what I found is that I never did that on the home front. I never thought strategically about how I would be an effective communicator at home. But once I did, it, be, it made much more sense to basically, instead of being resentful or not saying anything at all or saying, again, you haven't taken out the recycling, you know, to really focus on the task at hand. And, and it's simply, and I, I talk about it in the book, but it's really, and you can use the book as an excuse for the opening of all of these conversations. You know, I read this book by this woman named Tiffany Dufu. Do not tell them the title of the book, though. That's a bad way to start. Um, <laughs> you know, and in it, she has, you know, she's really encouraging us to figure out what matters most to us. And one of the things that really matters most to me is X, Y, or Z, but I'm feeling really stressed because I have all these things on my plate that I feel like don't really ladder up to it. And I was thinking, because this is the most important part of any conversation, you are someone who I know cares about me, and I know that you love me, and I know that you have my back. I was hoping that maybe you could take out the recycling tomorrow. And I know it seems really silly that I'm giving you this big speech when I could have just sent a text message, but that is how important this is to me, that you take out the recycling. You know, Do you think that you could do that? And you're going to laugh, and he's going to laugh, or she's going to laugh. And they're going to say, of course, sure. Who wouldn't say that? If they don't say yes, that's a whole nother book right? <laughs> and a whole nother topic. Um, but then after that, so the challenge is those conversations can be had, and they're wonderful conversations, largely because what you discover 80% of the time when you actually have an intentional conversation that involves understanding better someone else's expectation of you is that your expectation of yourself is much higher than their expectation. As I found out when I let all of my little sisters know that I was not going to be able to respond to their text messages in two minutes, and they were like, yeah, okay, that's fine. Right? Um, the challenge is that they may not do it after they say, oh, sure, of course, right? Or they may not do it the way that you want them to do it. And then there's a whole set of strategies for that. Tiffany, I just wanted to thank you so much for your wonderfully entertaining um, an eloquent talk. So um, in the UK, gender inequality is so stark that out of our FTSE 100 companies, there are more men called John than there are women. <laughs> Did you all hear that? Did you catch that? <laughs> so, um, what I wanted to know is, I love that you've done all of this work in building the pipeline in terms of women getting big government positions and and I hope it's the same for women heading up these companies. Um, do you ever go back to the corporations that you work with and actually see that they've done the things that you've advised them to do? Are they actually making the changes? Sometimes they are. Um, but I'll be honest and say I'm very picky and choosy about who I work with. And because I want to make an impact, you know, I used to be constantly concerned about what I was doing and what I was supposed to do until I realized that what you do is far less important than the difference you make, right? I don't want my tombstone to say she got a lot of stuff done. So 
I don't accept an invitation to support an organization unless I've done some work around the leadership and whether or not I feel like the leadership is open and receptive, which is why I engage in the kind of questioning that I was talking about earlier. That's part of my litmus test for, is this an organization that's ready to really move its people forward and to really shift its culture? Otherwise, I don't work with them. So I do have a lot of companies who I go back to and I check and I ask, how is it going? Um, sometimes I spend much more time with the people in the ranks than I do with the leadership because at that point, that's how you really find out what's happening. And oftentimes, they've employed some of the strategies and some of them are working. Keep in mind that I also work with a lot of different companies. And the benefit of that, because we're all in our own silo, it's kind of like with women. I meet so many women who are feeling a certain way and I just want to say to them, no, no, the woman that came at nine, she has the same story. And the woman at 10, she's dressed about the same thing, you know. Um, it's very, I have, I, because I work with so many of them, then I can share the different strategies that actually work um, and say, I've worked with this company or I've worked with a company like yours and this will work. But in all fairness, it's in part because I don't want to work with any companies in which I don't think that my effort is going to make a difference. So, um, Unfortunately, there are a lot of companies that aren't making the kind of difference that I would like for them to make. But I try to avoid them. Uh, here in the pink. Um, here in the orange. And up top blue, second row. And uh, where did I lose this one? Who's got a microphone over here? Oh. Thank you. <laughs> if you could tell us your name and affiliation for your question. Uh, my name is Mary Fanick. I work with women in politics and public life. Yes. <laughs> so um, <clears throat> if I'm allowed two questions, um, you. have you um, spent enough time in the UK to be able to say which organisations you rate and notice at the moment working in the UK for women in public life? And the other is, I took a note of uh, Scott Page's name, mm -hmm. and I'm interested if you know whether there's any research about the impact of women as political decision makers. Do you want me to answer? Do you want to take more questions? Um, it's up to you. Uh, the answer to your first question is no. But I want your question to be answered. So is there anyone in the room that knows the answer to her first question about organizations in, oh, you know. <laughs> I know some of them. I'm just checking whether you, um, in your position, would you, sorry. I guess I'm wondering, in your position visiting the UK, I'm try, sort of trying to understand who's made an impact for you that's doing work that oh, you Oh, I admire. see. Um, no, but I, you know, I have this conundrum as an American, which is that... <laughs> Other parts of the world are much better at this than we are, right? So I would love to talk to you because I would love to bring those practices back to where I'm from, right? Okay, cool. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Um, the second question is about Scott, Page, Scott Page's work. Um, yes, there is. And if, you can, if, you can, if I can get your email, I can send you some links. Um, the organization that does the best work on it is called the Center for American Women in Politics. And they then link back to a number of other organizations globally um, that do really great work on that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, cool. Um, hi, everyone. My name's Mary. I also work in management consulting. 
Um, okay, so my question, I really love what you said so far, Tiffany, was about, so earlier in your talk, you spoke about the fear of failure. Um, also, I went to a talk recently by Chimamanda Adichie, the author, about like the fear of likability or like how women feel like they have to be liked. Um, I was just wondering if you have practical tips for us here today about trying to reject um, feeling like you, everyone has to like you and ha that fear of failure as well. Mm. Okay, I'll wait. Let's get other ones up now. Okay. Uh, somebody's got a microphone. Second row here. Yep. Hi there. My name is Seppi. I am. Um, I'm a consultant in the government and NGO sector. My question. I'm going to exaggerate for effect, but I'm American. That's is, what we do. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I guess my question is: Do you have to martyr yourself when you're in an organisation to actually disrupt the organisation? And the reason I ask that is because I think. You know, in many spheres, not just in, in equality, um, but in, you know, in a whole range of spheres. As a consultant, you can give quite tough advice you know, to an organisation. When you're inside it, you're just a pain in the arse, basically, <laughs> um, for want of a better word. And I think that, that's, you know, do you have any tips around that into when you're within the organisation? Because I've often found that you can just, you can disrupt things perhaps maybe a too much is right or wrong <laughs> yeah as a member of an organization versus as a consultant do you want to take one more question yeah or? one more i think i saw just here uh first row in the yellow hi tiffany thanks for being here um my question is how do you drop the ball when people in your life aren't as receptive so for example let's say you have a very traditional mother or you have people at work who um, aren't as receptive to that, or you have friends who don't understand perhaps that at the time your obligations um, ex perhaps exceed theirs. Um, what do you do in those scenarios? Mm -hmm. So there was a question about likability and about the challenges that women face in the workplace that we all know to be true and that most of us have experienced if we've been in the work environment. I mean, one of the challenges that we have is that women don't have enough practice failing publicly. Um, when I was growing up, my dad used to always encourage me to run for student government, less because of the civic engagement, more because he just had this kind of old Greek model of you should stand and deliver your knowledge. And I think he imagined that if his daughter was giving speeches, she would um, be successful. Um, one of the effects of that experience is that I learned very early, you know, imagine you're in, you know, you're 10 or 11 years old and you run for elective office in your school. You make signs and posters and you hang them on the walls and you pass out pieces of paper with slogans about, you know, telling people why they should invest in you and why they should vote for you. And then you lose the election by the vote of your peers like this is really bad then you have to wake up the next day and go to school which is like the hardest day but if you do that enough times you realize that you can fail publicly by a vote of your peers your your peers voted you the loser <laughs> and you can get up and you can go to school the next day and the world doesn't end in fact People have a lot of respect for you. People say, you did such a great job. I'm so sorry that you didn't win. And the, the leaders in the school, the school administrators, also still identify you as a leader. Part of our challenge is that 
you know, we don't have enough practice understanding that it's the risk-taking and putting ourselves out there that creates the um, respect and, and that creates a brand for ourselves that makes all of that a lot easier. But I think the, the most important strategy I've had to engage with is a combination of, yes, helping other people to feel more comfortable with me by sometimes conforming, but also really paying attention to what is it that I want for people to know about me? How do I want to be perceived? And then to do old-fashioned <coughs> PR and marketing and to message the heck out of it. And I've done it several times in my career. There were times when I just needed people to understand that I was results-oriented, that I was results-driven, and everything was results-driven. Our team was results-driven, I was results-driven, the organization was results-driven, we all need to be results-driven. And before, lo and behold, before you know, people are introducing Tiffany, oh, you know, she's just so results-driven. So, <laughs> you, you know, you really do have to decide, you know, what is the conversation that I want other people to have about me and focus on framing that conversation as a distraction from all of the other things that are happening. And we can talk about how to do that, but you've got to kind of take charge of it yourself, otherwise you'll go crazy. There is a question about being a disruptor. So there's different ways to disrupt. And you know, what I would say about your question is that you have to disrupt in a way that's appropriate to the context that you're in, right? So sometimes people in the workplace, for example, um, engage in disruptive behavior that's activist behavior, right? that would be much more effective if you were literally marching in the street with a bullhorn. And if that's the kind of disruptor that you are, maybe you should be an activist. Maybe you shouldn't be sitting in your corporate job. Um, disruption sometimes in the corporate space, depending upon the culture you know, or the environment, could feel much more subtle and could seem that it's not disruptive, but it can be very, very disruptive. One of, one of the things that I do that's quite disruptive, but doesn't necessarily seem disruptive, is engage people who aren't like me, particularly in the United States around race, which is very, very tricky because we have these very weird racial dynamics, but really engaging people in meaningful and complicated conversations around race that really helps everyone in the room to feel like they can speak their truth, they can be vulnerable, they can say something silly, you know, or stupid, and not feel like that makes them a bad person. But I do it in a very pleasant way, but it's very disruptive. So I think that, you know, when we think about what it means to be a pain in the ass and what it means to be disruptive, I think that it can look different, you know, in many different environments. And I do think that as women, sometimes we have to be more savvy. Sometimes the best disruptors, particularly women in environments, often have a very sharp sense of humor you know, and they use humor to be disruptive. So I think we can adapt and shape our disruption in ways that make it much more palatable so that we're not perceived as a pain in the ass, but we're actually achieving results, which is what we ultimately want. The question about how, when other people have these perceptions, how do we manage that? I mean, in full transparency, the book is called Drop the Ball, not how to get other people to pick up the ball. Because we have to start with ourselves. And we are actually the most difficult people, 
often. We, we talk about other people and their expectations and how challenging it is, but the expectations and the pressure that we put on ourselves, I promise you, is often much higher, particularly if you had a mom like the one that you described, right? Because you then adopt that for yourself. But at the end of the day, you do have to decide, am I going to live their expectations or am I going to live my expectations? And do my expectations fit with the way that the world works for me and works for my family? Sometimes other people have expectations that are different, but unless you engage them in the meaningful conversation, you don't know exactly what they are. So full disclosure, there's actually one other thing that I have to do in order to be a good mom that my kids negotiated because the whole thing about the meaningful conversations, they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, you can do that if you want to, to be a good mom. But we think that in order for you to be a good mom, we need fresh scones on the weekends. <laughs> And surprise, surprise, you know, there's lots of things that mothers get very worried about that they're not doing. So it was very helpful to know that all I had to do from their perspective <laughs> was make scones on the weekends. And so every weekend I make them. If I'm traveling, then I'll make them on a Thursday and I'll wrap them in foil and put them in the freezer so that they can put them in the microwave or something, you know, on the weekend so that they can still have them. But so why, you can negotiate. You know, you can ask someone, well, this is what I've, I've decided. This is what works for me. Do you have expectations of me? that you feel that I should fulfill in order for you to feel like I'm living up to my end of the bargain with you. What are those? And find out what they are. You might find out it's just baking some scones, you know, which takes 15 minutes, and they're good to go. But I, I think a lot of us just make assumptions about what that might be. And once we have the conversation, we might find that it can be a win-win. So I think we have time for one more round um, of questions. So this is where all the hands will throw. We'll go. Uh, so how about just here um, in the pink and black, and uh, in the middle, in the black shirt, and here on the edge with the um, brown jacket in the middle, fourth row. Yeah. Whoever you're pointing to. <laughs> We've got women supporting women up here on the balcony. There's another woman saying, "No, her. Ask, ask for her." Uh, so why don't we start down here? Hi, um, my name is Naomi and I am a solicitor at Herbert Smith Freehills. Um, as everyone has said, thank you so much for your talk. Um, I guess my question is, particularly as someone who feels remarkably comfortable doing less, um, I know that it's not the intention of Drop the Ball because that is so much focused around what we as individuals and as women can do, but what your thoughts are... Um, about the flip side, not just on an individual basis, so like having one-to-one -one conversations with people about how to pick up um, the other side of you know the things you let go, but on a broader scale. I come to things like this and other talks that are, even if they're not so explicitly women-focused, they often are full of women, and it feels a lot like maybe there should be other people in the room who would be dealing with the flip side of that. Um, and I'd be interested to know your ideas about engagement on that front. Yes. It sounds like you're what I call a drop-the-baller. Okay. Many women in the room might already be a drop-the-baller. Um, it's very funny. You know how when you get something new, like you get a new car or a new handbag or a new pair of shoes, and you start noticing that everybody has one, right? Like, 
everybody has that car, everybody has that bag, it's like you see it. When I got to a point in my evolution where I was what I would call a drop the baller, all of a sudden I started meeting women who were like, oh yeah, I stopped cleaning the top of my refrigerator 10 years ago, you know? <laughs> I was like, well, how come I didn't get the memo? So, you know, I think that it's really important to have empathy and to be cognizant of other women who might be struggling. And the most important thing that you can do collectively on a scale is to tell your story and to figure out a way to amplify your story. Because remember, I was standing on stages and women were here thinking, oh my God, she's just so perfect and she has all this going on and how in the world is she doing this? Not knowing that I was doing it because there were a bunch of things that I weren't doing that they had no idea about. So I think the most important thing, if it's not your struggle, is to help support the needs of other people. And I think you might be alluding when you said that there are largely women in the audience. Uh, you know, the book, I asked someone recently about the book and they said, oh, I loved the book. It was, it was a love story. It was a great love story. And I, I thought that was interesting because I didn't write it as a love story. I wrote it as a book about women and leadership. But I hope that this book, um, because a lot of women have said, oh, my, I really want the man in my life to read this book, that it can help serve as that. Um, but I, except for you know the most important man in my life, which is my husband, I have not spent a lot of time and had, a not, had not have a lot of practice in meaningfully engaging um, men in the movement, so to speak, except through the work of some of my sages, my political mother, in doing things like Take Our Daughters to Work Day. You know, Take Our Daughters to Work Day was a strategy to engage men, right? in the movement. It was this idea that, well, men largely go to work, and if they bring their daughters to work, and that's how the whole thing started. So I, th I think that are really great strategies. I'm on the law. I was on the launch team for Lean In. Um, we have this program called Lean In Together. There are, there are lots of ways in which people are trying to be inclusive and engage all, but we all have to do it from our point of influence. Remember, from our highest and best use. So whatever sphere of influence you have, and we can talk about how you can do it within yours, but you don't have to change the world. You can take a little pressure off. Uh, someone's got a microphone up here, yep. Hi, Tiffany. My name's Aizan. I'm a Malaysian-born physician based in the UK, um, and now I'm doing my master's in public health at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Um, thank you so much for your talk. My question is probably a little bit controversial, or maybe a little bit unfair, because I've not read your book. Um, while I agree that um, women not achieving can be um, addressed by dropping the ball, I think it's only addressing one facet of um, the barriers to achieving. Um, and I think somehow a little bit might be simplistic. Um, so what other barriers are you aware of from um, your consultations with women? And uh, what other strategies um, have you come up with that these women can use. I'm sort of thinking in um, low and middle income countries um, type situation. Yeah, Thanks. absolutely. Well, there are lots of barriers. I spent most of my career focused on all those other barriers and not dealing with this issue because this was very small and, and individual. Um, in other parts of the world, um, we don't have access to very basics, to effective health care, to education, to um, even things like sanitary you know, supplies that they need in order for them to do their jobs and be effective. Um, in some parts of the world, they don't have access 
access to reproductive rights that allow them to decide how many children they're going to have, which has a huge impact on a woman and her ability to sustain the livelihood of herself and her families. And there are lots of NGOs and lots of institutions that are working on those for sure. Um, Even in the group of women that I'm largely addressing and drop the ball. There are other issues and barriers to their success at work. Um, things like really becoming politically savvy and understanding that you know your, your journey is a team sport and how you engage other people. You know, for example, you know, I have a lot of women who say, you know, I really want my work to speak for itself. And I always hate to break it to them that your work does not speak for itself. Your work has to have a voice. And it's not even sufficient for you to give it a voice. Other people have to give it a voice. A lot of this um, is covered in a lot of other books that I really value and appreciate, like Lean In. Um, Another really great book is Anne-Marie Slaughter's Unfinished Business. She talks a lot about it. And I love her, the dynamic that she uses that really disrupts the binary around gender at at all. She just says it's about care and and about competition and care and about the fact that we often have societies that don't value care, regardless of who's doing it, which I think is also very brilliant. So, you know, I, my book is, in all truthfulness, an answer, it's a personal answer to a personal question that I received that I felt that I owed women. And I think that there are a lot, there's a lot of work and there, there's a lot of body of knowledge around what, are, what some of those other barriers are. And they do exist that I think are really important. So I don't, that's not a controversial question. It's a good question. Uh, and likely our last question from over here. Um, hi, I'm Sarah, and I used to be a management consultant. I recently launched um, a company called Distrand that helps women drop the ball more easily. Um, so I worked on Distrand in Benin, in West Africa, where I'm from over the last nine months. And there were balls that I dropped in UK that unfortunately I had to take back in Benin. Mm-hmm. So one of my question was, was there a time when there was a, dro- a ball that you dropped that you had to take back because of the environment that you were in? And if that didn't happen, what, what is the advice that you, you, you could give us to, uh, to basically resist the temptation of having to take back a ball that was dropped? Oh, absolutely. She, yes. So, you know, dropping the ball is not a static one-time occurrence. And there, in my own personal life and in the book, I talk about some of the strategies and and literally some of the tools that I've used to determine at whatever point in time I need to pick up or drop, you know, the balls. Um, For example, we have a tool that we use in our home. It's a management Excel list. We call it a MEL for short. And it's like another person. It's like a member of our family, you know, and whenever something doesn't happen, it's like, oh, we need to have a conversation with Mel. I'm like, yeah, you know, you need to have a conversation with Mel. And it's literally an Excel list that lists every single thing. There's one column. The first column is everything that's required in order for our home to function smoothly. Everything from people getting haircuts to somebody washing the car to the laundry to the taxes. And then everybody has a column. In the beginning, I had a column. My husband had a column. And then the most important column was the no one column. Right? Now that our kids are older, they have columns on the mail. And every 
five or six months, we sit down and we have to figure out, well, who can do what based on our travel schedule, based on what's going on in our life, based on who's launching a new project or a new book, based on who is now, you know, old enough to be able to carry, you know, the garbage bag outside. Because for a long time, it was like a weight issue. It's like, oh, the kids aren't strong enough, you know, <laughs> to carry the bag down the steps, you know. And then when our son, you know, could carry the bag, it was like, woohoo, you know, he can like have that. Um, and the reason why the no one column is very important is because even with, we have four people in our household, you still can't get it all done. You still can't. So you have to agree what are the things that we've all agreed are just not going to happen. And we're not going to blame other people who live in, under this roof if it doesn't happen. We've decided that the car is going to be dirty for three months, that we're just going to pull clean clothes from the laundry basket, nobody's going to fold them, whatever those things are, so that you can manage the expectations, but also so that other people who are around you can help when they need. So we, it turns out that the most important the most important part of that no one column was that when people said, oh, you know, he's in Dubai and I know you're here or, you know, I know Tiffany's on a book tour and you're like here with the kids for all of this time. You know, is there something I could do to help? Oh, trust me, we have things that you can do <laughs> to help. And in that way, we've been able to cultivate a really incredible village of support and people who are always helping and always supporting us. So, you know, I would say, you know, in your mail, it's like, depending upon what country you're in at the time, you may pick up some balls, you know, for a certain period, and you know that when you get back to another country, you can drop them again. But the most important part is to be intentional about it. Okay, I think we have time for one final question. Uh, how about here? Yes! <laughs> I'll resist calling you token. <laughs> uh, hi, my name is Shrey. I work in financial services, um, an industry that's not very well known for having a lot of women in the core business uh, part of the industry. Um, and uh, my question is slightly tangential. It still pertains to your uh, presentation. Um, you showed us this pipeline of women who join uh, you know, the corporate world at 46%, and then it whittles down to 19% at the C-suite level. And uh, uh, a lot of firms are, like you said, are trying to at least pay lip service to the fact that they're getting more women in. And some of them do it in a slightly insidious way where they uh, hire a lot of women in HR or marketing. And it's come to that that in some places there's only one or two guys in the firm, so they are the outgroup, which is the opposite of the diversity that you're going for usually when you're hiring women. So what are some of the things that you say to business leaders in order to how to improve that pipeline right across the board and not to do it in an insidious way? Mm -hmm. So, you know, one of the ways is to provide opportunities when men and women enter the pipeline very early to demystify the environment right away. So I encourage them to provide opportunities, for example, for both men and women who are coming into their firm to have access to mentors, to people who can help them achieve clarity through guidance and encouragement, to have access to sponsors, and to have people who can explain to them how it really works around here. You see, because every environment is different and every culture is different, and there, there are unwritten rules that if you don't, if you're not attuned to right away, then you miss, and then you think that since you didn't get promoted, there must be something wrong with you, and so you put your head down and you work even harder. Um, 
but it doesn't work and then you get frustrated and before you know it, the pipeline begins to disintegrate. So it's really, for me, the most effective programs and the most effective strategies are ones in which the leadership says, you know what, we're really committed to the success of everyone here and we're going to not assume that everyone knows exactly what it means to be successful here. We're going to demystify that process and we're going to provide people the access to the most important asset that we have, which is our senior leaders in some way, shape or form. And I've seen organizations use technology to do it. There are all kinds of creative ways to give more people because the biggest excuse is right but if you you have a senior executive like what is that person going to mentor 50 people right but there are all kinds of ways and actually Levo is helping to do that through its online platform Um, I think it's really it's really important but the best organizations that have done really well are the ones that actually give the young people access to the leadership the mentorship and the sponsorship that they need in order for them to be successful yeah well, I think we probably could stay here um, well into the evening, uh, possibly into the morning, asking you questions. Um, but uh, I think we'll draw it to a close now. Tiffany, thank you so much thank for you. being here today, um, for your experience, your expertise, and for being willing to fit us into your very busy schedule. <laughs> um, Tiffany's going to stick around for about 15 minutes uh, to sign copies of her book. Um, the books are available for purchase just outside the uh, lecture theater. Um, if You are getting a book. If you could uh, queue, I think this side is maybe the easiest step. Um, If you could queue here, and uh, the stewards are going to hand you a post-it note. If you could write your name on that post-it note, just to make things a little bit easier for Tiffany. Um, But this is the end of our time together, so please join me in thanking Tiffany for...